Hello, my name is Ilya, and I attend this church. That's it. That's the introduction. <clears throat> um, last time I was here, I preached um, on Jonah. And fun fact, my mom came to listen to me preach. Her and my father were church planters, and she said that watching me preach and talk about Jonah reminded her of one of the last series my dad preached, which was on Jonah, before we moved to the States. And that was a really fun thing for her to see. Um, so I wanted to share that with you. And she's here today again. I will not be pointing her out because she would not like that, and it would not honor her well. Um, but she's here among you. Um, so we're in the book of Jonah, or psych, we're in the book of James. I came preaching the wrong sermon this morning. Um, and Megan last time said the book of James is a beautifully crafted punch to the gut. And with uh, the last two weeks of spending time meditating on the book of James, reading it over and over and over again, and allowing the Lord... Um, allowing the Holy Spirit to use the Scriptures to read me as well. I don't feel like it was just a gut punch. I feel like I went, coming into this service, 12 rounds with Mike Tyson. So I just feel like this passage of Scripture has just wrecked me in, in the best way and exposed the unredeemed parts of my own humanity. It is the beauty of us living in what is called the already but not yet where we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and yet we are awaiting for God to redeem all things. And so I just found myself in this space, um, and, and I grew up in a tradition that reveres the Word of God. It is, uh, it's really important that we study the Word of God, that we read the Word of God. And for me, um, the older I get, the more I believe that if Scripture is designed to be a form of communion with God, that we would not only read the Scriptures, but we would allow the Scriptures to read us as well. Um, <clears throat> and the book of James, I think, if we're not careful, can quickly become a tool for self-flagellation or self-chastisement because it does tend to be very black and white. And so when we read it, um, it becomes a form of self-chastisement where we start beating ourselves up for the things that we are not versus seeing is it as something that God is inviting us into. And um, more or less of an x-ray that exposes um, the yet unsurrendered parts in exchange for deeper intimacy with God. So I want to tread lightly as we open up our word together um, and welcome the Holy Spirit in our midst. So flip with me to James chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> and while we do that, I just want to say a quick word of prayer. Holy Spirit, come. Be in our midst. Lord, illuminate to us. Uh, God, I am in no way, shape, or form attempting to convict in order to transform. Lord, you are the one that does the convicting. So God, guide us through this process as we meditate on your word together and attempt to get closer to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to live and walk in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. <clears throat> 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, saying, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourself, and become judges with evil intent? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whatever, for whoever keeps the, the whole law but fails at one point becomes guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For the judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. So to set the scene, James is talking about a scenario. Maybe this is real. Maybe he's using this as an example to um, elaborate on a greater point. Um, But setting the scene is there is a gathering. James is writing this letter to a group of people, much like ourselves. And in the midst of the gathering, there is a wealthy man that comes in. And based on the external appearances, right, it says that he's wearing the coat, he's got the rings, symbols of wealth, power, influence. At that time, we're giving preference to the wealthy man. And in exchange, we give him special treatment. And to the poor man, we say, you can sit in the back, you can sit at a distance, this is reserved for the elite. He makes a comment by saying to the poor man that you can sit at my feet. Now, the distinction in elevation, I think, in the biblical language is really important. Typically, things that are lower to the ground are deemed as dirty. So a footstool, the equivalent of sitting at a footstool where you can rest your feet, is might as well saying, like, you can sit by my footstool, meaning on the literal dirt or on the ground as a whole. Um, And so basically saying you are dirty and creating a distinction, which then James confronts and says this is not the way of the kingdom. This is not what God is calling us as a people to And in order to make sense of this, I think we need to understand the early church was not primarily full of celebrities or wealthy people holding power. The early church was primarily composed of poor, lower class, and oftentimes illiterate people. Letters like James would be read out loud during a congregational meeting for that purpose, much like this. And on top of that, Christians were widely persecuted for their faith. The first 500 years, the rapid growth of the church is built upon the blood of martyrs. Men and women who, who are 
fidelity to Jesus, King Jesus refusing to deny him, the church is built upon their lives. In a diatribe, which is uh, just a verbal attack, in a diatribe against the Christian movement in the early church, a prominent Roman philosopher in the first century attacked Christians simply because they were poor and uneducated, comparing Christian gatherings to a swarm of ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium amidst a swamp or worms holding a convention. Again, this language of creatures that dwell in the dirt or on the ground. I don't think it's a coincidence that when God confronted Satan in his rebellion, the beginning of Genesis, he said, you will crawl on your belly all the rest of your days, meaning your body will be in contact with the lowest of the low. And there's much to say, of course, in the early church. There's plenty of wealthy people, and the Bible has much to say about that. Um, But the church was not built on the wealthy or the powerful, yet it is a movement that has revolutionized the world. The assumption that James is making, and that, I mean, that we are making, is James is talking to a group of believers that either have wealthy people in their midst or have wealthy people that have power and influence who often visit the church and in both scenarios are given priority and special treatment simply based on that fact alone. And I think we need to be careful here, and I want to create a distinction of what is James not saying and what is James saying when he's talking about classism, when he's talking about the wealthy, affluent, and the poor and marginalized. I don't believe that James is saying that to be rich is a sin. And that if you are poor, somehow you are more righteous or that you are closer to God simply based on that fact. As if you go from being poor to being rich, you're no longer close to God. I don't think James is making that distinction. And I don't think this is James's attempt to humiliate wealthy people. I don't think this is James's attempt at some sort of Christian manifesto to like eat the rich. I don't think this is his attempt to be reelected as the next bishop or pastor of his church. I think what James is saying is this is not about a friend-to-friend relationship. This is our treatment of strangers. And the Greek language around partiality and favoritism indicates not an occasional display of favoritism, but an ongoing habitual pattern of giving priority simply based on class. Partiality, I think James is saying, partiality does not align to be true of what we know about God. Showing favoritism or partiality is countercultural to the kingdom of God, that we place ourselves in juxtaposition. We are at odds with the kingdom of God when we live and act in partiality. Favoritism ultimately leaves us bound to the law. Megan last week talked about that we operate and live in the law of freedom. James refers to a royal law, the greatest commandment, to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. 
This is the royal law. And when we do not love but act in partiality, creating systems ultimately of discrimination, we bind ourselves to the law. We go backwards. Ultimately, favoritism, he says, is a sin. And that this sin leaves us self-condemned. Dang it! I hate it when I self-condemn. I hate it when we do that. In the kingdom of God, God does not play favorites. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor male or female, for we are all one in Christ. This is the beauty of the kingdom, that these dividing walls of hostility are shattered with resurrection power. There are no special hurdles, regardless of who you are, where you come from, and what you've experienced. There is no glass ceiling that is keeping you from partaking at the table of God. You have a seat at the table. This is the goodness of the gospel. So if playing favorites puts us at odds with the kingdom of God, why do we do it? What is partiality really? Partiality is giving special preference or treatment to something or someone. It, it is superficial. And it, I think partiality is the external manifestation of an internal bias. And the book of James is designed to be a mirror to us so that we can see into ourselves. And partiality allows us to see the bias that exists within us. Ultimately, it's discrimination. Whether we call it favoritism, whether we call it partiality, it is discrimination based on class, based on race, based on gender, age, etc. So my question isn't necessarily what is it, but why do we do it? And in order for us to move forwards, I think we actually need to move backwards a little bit in the text. Uh, James defines sin, and then he says that partiality is a sin. So in chapter 1, verse 14, James says, But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So partiality is brought forth by human desire. Dallas Willard says, desire is not the same thing as love. Love is the will to good, to pursue the good of something or someone for their own sake. For I may desire something without even wishing it well, much less it's good. I might desire a chocolate ice cream cone, for example, but I do not wish it well, for I choose to eat it. When our desires are not governed by love, they lead, ultimately, to chaos. Love has to govern our desires. Timothy Keller, speaking on boundaries, talks about a, um, almost a contradiction in our Western culture. We have, a, we have a value system. And each value system, both whether it's personal or as a people group who live in the West, live in America, um, there's a hierarchy of values. 
And a lot of people would argue that freedom is the supreme value in our culture. Timothy Keller, when he talked about ultimate freedom, said freedom is not the absence of boundaries. It is not unlimited uh, unrestraint towards our desires. He said, we have desires that are conflicting within us. And he used the example that he's a diabetic. He said, if I wanted to desire to eat everything that I wanted to eat, I would not be able to live a long life and see my kids and my grandkids grow up. I have a hierarchy of desires. And if I was to tend to all of them, it would leave me in chaos. It contradicts. So he said that ultimate freedom is not the absence of boundaries, but the presence of the right ones. And I'm here to propose that love is that present boundary in our walk with God. Love is the guardrail that keeps us from driving off the cliff. Love has to govern our desires. And ultimately, partiality, discrimination, favoritism, it is a disorder of our desires. So why? I'm not sure. But I do have a working theory, so bear with me. My working theory is that throughout the scriptures, I think humanity as a whole has this propensity to desire the higher things. We have something in us, whether it is the flesh, whatever you want to call it, but something that desires the higher things, whether it is in uh, social interactions, whether it is in status, whatever it may be, we desire the higher things. Think with me through Eve. In the beginning of Genesis, when she was confronted by the serpent, what did he offer her? He did not tempt her by coming in and beating her over the head with a club. He offered her a lie. And that lie was for a higher knowledge. Humanity's original greatest rebellion that ultimately becomes a motif all throughout Scripture for human rebellion and sin is the building of the Tower of Babel. Building a tower to the heavens, a real physical manifestation of greatness. And the desire behind the building of that is so that God could make our name great both a literal and a figurative idea of grandeur that later becomes a motif for everything else. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, when he's confronted and tempted by the devil, it is by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Basically, the enemy is tempting Jesus with saying, you can have the greatest of the greatest. You can be the greatest. You can have all the power and all the authority and oversee all the kingdoms. Are you not the Son of God? It is an invitation by tempting him with things that we would want. We want to be great. We want to have all of our needs met. We want to live comfortably. We want to reign and rule, which is oddly enough the thing that Jesus tells us to do in the garden. But it is a distortion of that. The Apostle Peter, when he, in in Galatians Um, Paul says that there's this moment where Peter is ministering to a group of Gentiles, right? Those that were outside of the church now are grafted into the church. And then the Jews show up, and Peter, for fear of criticism, 
chooses to align himself with the Jews and refuses to eat with the Gentiles. Friends, this is an apostle of God, right? Like, if he does it, what hope do we have? This should be a signpost to our own life to go, this is more common than we are led to believe. And Paul confronts him, and how he confronts him isn't by beating him over the head. He invites him to go, hey, this is not the gospel. This is not the way. This is not the kingdom of God. His invitation out of favoritism or discrimination is just reminding him of the gospel. This is not to to which you've been called. So why do we favor the rich? Why do things like classism exist? I think, my working theory is because it ultimately benefits us. And that's the hard reality. We have something to gain from it. And this gain stands in contrast to love. It's the complete opposite. If we favor them, they might favor us. If I help them in this way, they might be more inclined to help me in that way. And maybe if they like me enough, our relationship will open doors of opportunity for me that might otherwise remain closed. So what happens when we participate in partiality? When we live and operate out of a system of favoritism in our life? When we consistently give into partiality, we fail to love our neighbors well. Friends, we become bad neighbors. We stop seeing people as objects of God's love made in his image, and we begin to see people as a resource for our personal gain. We stop seeing people as the objects of God's love made in his image, and we start seeing people as a resource for our personal gain. And friends, when we do something consistently enough, whether it is good or bad, it becomes a habit. And habits are formational. And so we begin to be formed into a type of person when we consistently live and operate in partiality. The byproduct is that we turn into a type of person that does not love but a type of person that becomes a judge, and specifically a judge of people. As we judge, James says, so we will be judged, because love covers a multitude of sins, and mercy, James says, triumphs over judgment. As we're beginning to be formed into the way of Jesus, It is to become like Jesus. And we are being invited to love like Jesus, by love, for love. The ultimate goal of our formation as disciples of Jesus is to be turned into a person of love. 1 John says, for God is love. And I don't believe it's a coincidence That as we have this human desire for the higher things, that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, was described in Isaiah as nothing impressive to look at. That Jesus came to serve and not be served. 
that Jesus identified himself with the poor and ultimately modeled a posture for the kingdom by washing his disciples' feet. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus stands in juxtaposition for the ways of the world. The way of the kingdom is to serve and not be served. The way of the kingdom is to not discriminate but identify with the poor and ultimately model through servant leadership. In the early church, I was reading an excerpt uh, by N.T. Wright this week, and he said, in certain churches, um, when strangers would walk in, they would have elders greet them at the door. So if we were sitting here in the congregation, and a stranger walked in, an elder would get up and go and say hello and welcome them. And if a stranger walked in that a in appearance, seemed to be of a lower class, the bishop himself would get up and welcome them at the door. As a counterformation to classism, the highest form of leadership in the church would serve. As I allowed this passage to wash over me uh, this last week, I just found myself confronted with my own bias. Over the last few years, I found myself identifying with the people who would be reading James's letter. Maybe it's, you know, and I kind of sat there and I was like, man, what, why? Why does this exist me? Why, why does this exist in me? And how is it so deeply rooted? And there's parts of me that said maybe it's, the immigrant in me that moved here at a young age, who's bought into the vision that if I made it, anybody can make it. And you know what? If you just pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you could make it happen, not realizing so that some people don't even own shoes. Maybe it's the influence of social media, the news that is having a greater impact on my thoughts and my life than the way of Jesus. Than the voice of Jesus. Maybe it's a religious and self-righteous spirit within me that places myself above others. And I am reminded that Jesus, who's being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As a counterformation in my life, I spent the last three years being intentional, um, almost like Jesus when he was walking by the pool of Bethesda, where there were a lot of invalids, where most people, people who are crippled, have diseases, where most people would walk past that because they don't want to associate with people like that. In the gospel, it says that Jesus walked towards it. Counterformation is not pretending that something doesn't exist. It is walking towards it. Jesus is not afraid of the mess. Jesus is not afraid of what people are going to think, of his status, of of his reputation, Jesus walked towards it. 
And so taking that same posture over the last three years, I've been walking towards my own bias. And doing that primarily, I think sometimes when we think, especially in the West, when we think about classism or poor versus rich, the immediate response, and this is such an indicator to our own privilege, is we throw money at it. Right? What do you need? A hundred bucks? Okay. Let me just write a check real quick. Venmo? Is that cool? Right? And so we just throw money at stuff. And I think what James is saying, he's not saying uh, creating this um, idea that it, we're wrong for giving preference. He's not saying we're wrong for giving preference. He's saying we're wrong for discriminating. We're not giving equal preference, equal treatment. And the solution is not, he didn't go, hey, why don't you go take the rich guy's rings and put it on the poor guy's fingers? The solution was spending time. Megan mentioned earlier um, a word about belonging. We talk about this, and I think belonging is really complicated. I, I don't think belonging necessarily, the solution is having the right things in place. I think belonging is felt. And it's hard to build. Because sometimes, even in our own families, we don't feel like we belong. Belonging is a felt experience. And when we treat inequality as a problem to be solved rather than an experience to be had, we miss the point. I think James is not inviting us to go, hey, let's just throw some money at it, get it fixed, get them all dressed up so we can all look the same. I think what James is getting at is proximity brings empathy. It is an invitation to spend time with. So, in the last three years, I've been trying to spend a lot of time. Time with people that I disagree with. Time with people that I found this feeling in me. And we all know what this is like, okay? So I'm not going to pretend like I'm the weird one here. But we all have this feeling when we see something or someone that just makes us go, ugh, right? Like, ugh. We all have that, all of us. It just varies of what that is. And so whenever I felt my body respond physically for what maybe I could not comprehend mentally, I would listen to that. And when my body responds and I get an ick, right? Like, ugh. I go, okay, I need to explore that. What is it about this part of my life specifically that makes me feel that way? And how can I invite Jesus into it? I think oftentimes we're, we aren't necessarily bringing Jesus into those spaces. Jesus is bringing us into those spaces. And it has been a humbling and at times heartbreaking and very difficult experience. But that is the way of the kingdom. And maybe for you, it's not classism. Maybe for you, it's not homelessness. Maybe for you, it's not the impoverished. Maybe for you, the discrimination or favoritism. And, and I want to say that there's like overt and covert, right? Like we can verbally say something, and then we can also act by not doing anything at all. So maybe for you, it's the rich, obnoxious guy at your work. Maybe it's reversed. Maybe it's the neighbor with the Trump 2024 flag hanging outside their house. Maybe it's the neighbor in your neighborhood who has the LGBTQIA flag hanging outside their house. 
Maybe it's towards other Christians who hold different theological beliefs or positions or whatever. The list can go on and on and on. So my prayer for us is this. I think sometimes um, people have a tendency when they preach books like James or talk about James um, or anywhere where we find imperatives in the scriptures to teach it as like, you need to do this. And if you don't do this, therefore, I, I don't think it's that. And I want to avoid that. I think sometimes in our attempt to motivate people, to change people, we attempt to convict people, thinking that that's going to inspire change. I think conviction, I don't think I know, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I am in need of the grace of God, the mercy of God, just as much as you. We're in it together. As soon as I get off this stage, I'm just a guy at church, right? And so my prayer for us is this. May God reveal to us where we have built up dividing walls of hostility in our hearts towards our neighbors. May the Spirit of God cultivate in us love towards that person or that group and that we may be doers and not just hearers. Respond to what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. And friends, my prayer over the last three years has been this. Lord, don't just help me to desire the things. Give me the desire to desire the things. Let me pray. Lord, help us. God, help us. Lord, we are desperately in need of grace, found in this place of walking in the way of Jesus, who offered love freely. Lord, would you show us how to do that well? God, and I just pray that your spirit right now would speak to us. Would you give us an image, a picture, or a word of the thing that is yet unredeemed in our own heart? And God, as you are inviting us to be better neighbors, Lord, would you just make us aware? God, would we be doers of the word? Would we be faithful to follow as you lead? In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Kitsap House podcast sermon series, a Kitsap House production. We are located in Port Orchard, Washington, with in-person worship every Sunday at 1730 Southeast Mile Hill Drive inside the Raw Gym in the Town Square Mall. Services are 10 a.m. For more information, go online to kitsaphouse.org. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you, and God bless.